on March 2nd, 1962, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, history was made as the Philadelphia Warriors battled against the New York Knickerbockers. On this night, something happened that has yet to even be close to accomplished in NBA history today. On this day, one individual somehow found a way to score by himself 100 points in one single NBA game. And for those of you that already know his name, his name is Wilt Chamberlain. He would go on to do something that has currently never even been close to being accomplished today. With a score, with scoring himself 100 points, beating the Knicks 169 to 147. Talk about no defense on that game. Now just to give you an idea how amazing this feat is, for those of you who don't understand basketball, understand this, that in 2017, the average points scored per team, this is for the entire game, the entire team, the average points scored per team is 106.3 points. So the average entire team scores just over 100 points. And one guy did that by himself. 100 points. One might look at this amazing record and say that Wilt Chamberlain could have won the entire game by himself. He didn't need a team. He was the team. But if you were to interview Wilt himself, he would say otherwise. Even though he did something truly amazing in the eyes of sports, which in my opinion may never ever be broken, that record. Even though he did something absolutely amazing, Wilt could not have done it by himself. One of Wilt's teammates and that particular game, his name was Guy Rogers. That day, he only had 11 points. He only had 7 rebounds, which is still pretty good. But on that day, Guy Rogers had 20 assists in that one game. And if you don't know basketball, that is amazing. Which means by himself, he single-handedly was able to pass the ball to a guy who successfully scored. Which means that he got at least 20, 40 points in assists by himself. You see, when you look at the score, 169 to 147, him scoring 100 points would not have been enough to win the game. He still needed his team. He still needed the ball to get passed to him. He couldn't make all the rebounds. He couldn't pass the ball to himself every single time. He needed his team. And though he is, he is an amazing basketball player for his time, he couldn't do it by himself. Despite the best effort by one guy, he still couldn't do it by himself. Even sports that require only one person, maybe golf, maybe tennis, they still need help from teachers and trainers and coaches to get them to where they are. See, nobody is a one-man show, truly. Here at Grace Baptist Church, there is no one-man player. There's not just one person making all the shots, collecting all the rebounds, and making all the assists to himself. This church only exists because of teamwork. And teamwork is what will make the difference in our world today. John Z. Maxwell, he is famous for coining this phrase, teamwork makes the dream what? Teamwork makes the dream work. But his quote actually doesn't end there. 
That's usually where we stop because that's just good enough for us. Teamwork makes the dream work. But he continues. But a vision becomes a nightmare when the leader has a big dream and a bad team. You see, a leader could have a big dream, but if he doesn't have the right team, that dream now just simply becomes a nightmare. We read a story here in Nehemiah chapter 6. And really, the story is the whole book. An amazing story how one man had a vision to do something great for God. And though you can look at this book, and I could easily have written a sermon about Nehemiah, about his leadership, and Nehemiah's amazing ability to get all these people to do this great work in just 52 days. But as great as Nehemiah was, Nehemiah was nothing without his team. Nehemiah could never see his dream work without teamwork. If you could turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2, and I'd like us to see the first thing here this morning is the dream of Nehemiah. The dream of Nehemiah. Nehemiah had a big vision, a dream to do something that was pretty much crazy at that time. It didn't really make sense considering the circumstances that Nehemiah was in. In Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. <laughs> then I was very sore afraid. This is the king talking to him. Verse 3, And said unto the king, let, not the, or, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth in waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? You see, in the chapter before, Nehemiah, had a, there was a group of people that came up from Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem... Israel's in captivity right now. They're not in their promised land. But there was a group of people that were allowed to go back and to live there. And they were coming now back from Jerusalem and they told the story to Nehemiah that their city was laid in waste. Nehemiah was broken. He was a changed man. His visage was changed. He couldn't be the cupbearer, the happy cupbearer that he once was to his king when knowing that his people were dying and hurting back at his home country. Now in verse 4. Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make requests? Wow. The king looks at him and says, What do you want? Nehemiah wasn't expecting that. Now he was fasting and praying in the chapter 4, saying, God, what do I do? How could I be a blessing? How could I help? And he wasn't actually making a request to the king, but the king stopped Nehemiah and said, Nehemiah, what do you want? Verse 5. Uh, and I, I, said, I, said, I, said, I said unto the king, he's probably nervous, if, if it please the king and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight. I don't think he rehearsed this, this right here. He wasn't expecting this to happen. If it please the king and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. 
I don't think he rehearsed this. I think he got caught off guard. I think after he walked away, he thought, did I just ask the king to... <laughs> did I just... Am I leaving now? Am I, what am I doing? What happened? And the Spirit of God came upon Nehemiah. No doubts. In verse 6, And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be? What? How long do you want to be away for? Uh, and when, and will, when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over until I come into Jordan. There was a lot of enemies around. He needed protection. But here it is, verse 8. And the letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the, of the palace, which appertaineth to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me, according to the good hand of my God, upon me. Wow. Wow. Just the day before, just days before, Nehemiah was on his knees fasting and praying before God, saying, God, what's to be done of your city? God gives Nehemiah a dream. A dream, if you will. What was it that Nehemiah was wanting to do? What was God calling Nehemiah to do? It says in verse 8, the first thing was to simply build and repair the gates of the city. It's very simple. To build and repair. It says in verse 8, uh, a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace which appertains to the house. He wanted to rebuild the gates. Now we're going to talk about this a little more later. But understand that the wall of Jerusalem was vast. It was large. It went all the way around. It was, this was not a small feat. And all throughout the wall were gates all around the city. I believe there was 12 or so gates, maybe more or less. I, I'm not 100% sure, but there was several gates placed around the walls for people to enter in and out. And most of the gates had been burned to the ground. The city was completely vulnerable. Now, as we know, the book before Nehemiah, what book is that? Ezra. What happened in Ezra? What was built in Ezra? The temple was built. The temple was rebuilt. Now, there is a bit that the dates of Ezra and Nehemiah kind of uh, intertwine a little bit, but we know that the temple was built, but it was completely vulnerable. The walls were destroyed. The gates had been burned down. The enemy could just waltz right in and do what they please. So he says, King, I would like to repair the gates of the city. I would also like to repair the walls surrounding Jerusalem. If you would allow me to do so, I need provisions. He asked the king for provisions from Asaph to give him wood and timber to help him build the gates, to build the walls. He not only got permission from the king to leave, and we would find out he'd be gone for 12 years. Not only would he have permission to leave... But he also had the nerve to ask the king to give him all the supplies to build it. What? What, what happened to Nehemiah? He was just a simple cupbearer. Now he's making demands of the king. But when God's hand is behind something, who can stop you? When the Holy Spirit of God comes upon a man of God, when those two things connect, a dream can happen. A dream is formed. And Nehemiah has this dream. He wants to do something for God. And the last part of verse 8 says also to build himself a house to stay in. Now there's nothing more really said of his house. I don't think it was a grand house. He just said, oh, if you can give me a few extra supplies, I just need, I need a place for my family and I to live while we're there. I don't need anything, uh, meet, I don't need anything big. 
I don't need to live uh, like maybe uh, some of those large houses are in Vancouver. I just need something small, something nice. To rebuild these walls in 52 days was no easy task. But it certainly was a possible one. It wasn't impossible what he was asking. A lot of the walls actually had already were built. This is a picture of what they believe was part of Nehemiah's original wall way back when. Now, to, the walls had already been built at one time and Nehemiah's objective was to repair the walls. Now, like I said, there really wasn't any gates left. And a lot of the walls, there were, ch- there were parts, no doubt, that were completely destroyed. So Nehemiah wasn't necessarily rebuilding them all from scratch, but this simply was not an easy task to do. These men were, they'd been in captivity for many years. Many of them weren't skilled laborers. How is Nehemiah going to do this? How is he going to get the funds, the camaraderie, to do something great for God? You know, there's a lot of pastors, a lot of Christians today who have a vision, a dream, to do something great for God. But sometimes that dream is just big. Nehemiah had... Had God given you that vision, that dream, in Nehemiah's place, would there even be a Nehemiah? Would there be a book written after you? If God had given you that vision, would you have had the courage and the Spirit of God to make this happen? Boy, if you read the book of Nehemiah, it was not an easy task. But God had given Nehemiah a dream, a vision. You know what? God has given Grace Baptist Church a dream, a vision. I mean, look around you. There's not, there's not a lot of room left. We need to grow, and we are growing, and we have visions, and I hope you're praying that God would give us more land, and God would grow. We're trying to reach the city for Christ, but we can't do it. There's just a, there's just a few of us here in this room. Surrey is vast, and every day more and more people are moving here, moving around this area. I mean, we can't do it. We have a, a vision to reach the city for Christ, a dream, if you will, to see missionaries in every country of the world that our church can support. We, want, we have a vision to see people reach for Christ, but let's just be honest, it's a really big dream. Can it be done? Something else now. Not only do we see the dream of Nehemiah, but there's this scheme against Nehemiah. As you read, and we're not going to go through every chapter and every verse to show you all the bad things and negative things that hounded Nehemiah, but quickly, if you will, when God is at work, you can guarantee a scheme from Satan will just be around the corner to stop you. When you start doing, living your life for God, you can guarantee the devil's going to go, Oh, I don't want them doing that. Oh, he's starting to pray more? Oh, we better make him tired. We better keep the baby crying at night. We better make sure that he doesn't get to bed early enough so that he, can't, he doesn't have the energy to get up in the morning. Oh, that person's starting to give to faith promise. We better stop that. You could, you could just guarantee, once you start giving your life to God, the devil's going to be there to meet you, to challenge you, to test you. And let me tell you, Nehemiah had all the challenges. The first thing we see here in chapter 4, in fact, before we go there, if you would look at uh, chapter 2 and look in verse 19. We're in Nehemiah chapter 2. Look in verse 19. This is after Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem. He's got some people with him. Verse 19 of chapter 2 says, But Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arabian, heard it. <laughs> they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? This is like day one of getting there. Thanks. 
not even a break, a, a time to celebrate, that we're going to try to do something great for God, and already the enemy is there scheming against Nehemiah. Many schemes took place throughout this book. And here's the first one. We see a personal threat of incompetence. Look in chapter 4 and verse 1. Chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, so they're still in the process, he was wroth and took indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the, rub of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him. And he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break it down their stone wall. He shall even break down their stone wall. They're mocking Israel openly. They're saying, what are you doing? You don't have what it takes. You can't build this wall. In fact, you don't even know what you're doing. You're going to build a wall and a fox is going to walk across and the whole wall is going to come crumbling down. You're not experienced. You don't have what it takes. And there was a threat against the incompetence of Israel. They were threatening who they were as a person. And you can just count on a personal threat from the devil if you start to do something great for God. You can count on a personal threat from the devil if you start to make a big decision for God. You can count on the devil threatening the competence of your decision. Are you sure about that? Are you sure you can do it? Do you know how dumb you'll look in front of others if you, if you decide to do that? You won't last a day. So why even try? You say you want to give more to missions, but you don't have the money. Are you crazy? You want to surrender your life to God? You don't have what it takes. You're too shy. You're too stupid. You're too sinful. You're too ignorant. You're too old. You're, too, you're not talented enough. You can't do it. You don't have what it takes to make a difference in your school, in your workplace, in your family, in your university, or even at your home. You know what? The devil starts whispering those thoughts to you and starts saying that you don't have what it takes. This is what you say back to the devil. You're right. I don't have what it takes. Maybe I am short. Maybe I am too tall. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe I don't have what it takes. Maybe I don't have the money. Maybe I don't even have the courage. Maybe I am too shy. You're right, devil. I don't have what it takes. But I know a God who can give me the power to do what I can't do. I know a God who can allow me to do which that I am not capable of doing. But you know what? God gave Nehemiah a dream. And not only will God give you a dream, but he will also give you the ability to fulfill that dream. Now, if your dream is selfish, you don't expect that dream to get fulfilled. But if God has given you a vision, a something to do in your life, if you've been praying about something and God says, yes, do it, God's going to give you the ability to do it. You are the only ones that can weaken yourself. You are the ones that oftentimes stop yourself from doing something great for God. So you're right, you don't have what it takes, but through a powerful God, you can make a difference. We can't make a difference in the city by ourselves. We don't have what it takes. But if we allow the Spirit of God to lead us and to guide us and to move us, you'd be surprised what we can do for God. I mean, you look at our church, I can't believe 2019 is around the corner. Our 20th year anniversary is next October. Boy, 19 years ago, just as any church would start, with just a handful of people in a living room, it's hard to imagine. But no doubt, Pastor White and those few folks there in the room had a vision to see God do something. It didn't happen overnight. It was a lot of hard work. 
But look where we're at today. And just imagine what we can be many years from now if we can stay faithful to God. And not in our own might, but in God's might. Nehemiah's competence was threatened, but that didn't stop him. You know what else was threatened? A physical threat at war was, threat, was happened. Now, you and I may never have this happen to us, I hope. But look, the devil doesn't just stop there with a personal threat to his incompetence. Look in chapter 4 now, in verse 7. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashadites, man, they just keep adding more enemies, heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, that they were very wroth and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Look in verse 11. And our adversary said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. Israel was not an army. They didn't have the weaponry to defend. They were trying to build their city first and then could they have a chance to defend. And now you've got four or five different nations now gathering together, threatening, saying, If you keep this work up, we're going to come in and kill all of you. We're going to destroy you. Well, that's scary. That would scare me. I mean, here's this, this overzealous Nehemiah, and maybe he gives this charge. Come on, guys, we're going to go and do something great for God. Yeah, let's do it. Woo! And then they start pattering away and building up, and now this army, this, this, these generals, these armies or whatever, show up and say, if you keep going, we're going to kill you. Hey, Nehemiah, it's been nice working with you, but, uh, you know, <laughs> my life is not worth this wall. I don't know what you would be saying. I don't know what I would be saying, to be honest. But once you start trying to serve God, you can guarantee the devil will threaten you with spiritual war. He will tell you how hard your life will be if you make this decision for God. He will tell you it's not worth the sacrifice. It's not worth the risk. It's not worth the lifestyle if you do that for God. If you start walking with God more, the devil will do his best to scare you away from following him. Because the devil is scared of a person that makes the decision to follow Christ. The reason the devil threatens you so much is because he's actually scared of you. Because the devil actually can't do any hurt to you without permission from God. We know that from Job. The devil looked down at Job. Actually, God looked down at Job and said, Hey, uh, Satan, you see Job down there? And Satan says, Yeah, he's only doing good because you put a hedge of protection around him. But if you would let me access to his life... You see, the devil needs access to our life. He has no power over you. God has power over you. God has control over you. And you know what? The devil will try his best to throw threat. But all the devil can do is threaten you. It is God that actually allows things to happen to us. Now, why he allows some things, sometimes we don't know. But I do know that he always gives us the strength to get through them. He won't give you something that you can't handle. The Apostle Paul realized that. War never happened to Nehemiah, by the way. Oh, threatening after threat after threat after threat took place, but no war actually came and nobody actually fulfilled their threat. You want to know why? Because God didn't let them. Because they can't do something that God won't let them do. And when we start to realize how powerful God is and when God is on our side, who actually can stop us? Let the devil talk and threaten all he wants, but it's not up to him. He doesn't get to choose what to do. He has to get God's permission to do anything. So don't be scared of the devil. Instead, fear the Lord. Fear Him. Fear His judgments. Fear what God has placed before us. And put our faith and respect and trust in God. Don't let the devil scare us around. You see, there was a physical threat of war, but Nehemiah didn't let that stop him. Oh, here's a big one. Then there was a financial threat. 
of oppression. A financial threat. Oh, the devil likes this one. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 5. Seems like every few verses a new threat arises. Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 1. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren the Jews. For there were that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. And we can keep reading and reading. Basically, is the children of Israel, they were poor. They had no money. And to make matters worse, there was even some of the Jews who actually were oppressing the poor Jews. They were oppressing each other instead of just the enemy doing it. There was just a big mess and a, a big thing that was taking place. Nehemiah had to deal with this. And let me tell you something. This is a classic move the devil makes. He knows people can't help but love their money. He knows how precious money is to us. Even the best of Christians get caught up with the love of money. Society has created a desire within us to have money, to be successful. And success can only come with money. That's what some of the world says. But is that true? Obviously, in your mind you're saying, of course not, it's not true. You say that's not true. Can success only be obtained by, a, by making a good income or even a decent income? Of course, in your mind you're saying, no, of course not. But you see, many of you will say the answer is no with your mouth, but your heart will say otherwise. You'll, tell, you'll say, yeah, oh, no, money doesn't have a control on me. No, I don't really care. As long as my kids serve God, that's what matters. But your actions are different than what your speech is. Many Christian parents today don't let their kids serve God because they say there's no money in it. Or well, there's no future in that. Many parents will smother the calling of God in their kid's life by telling them, oh, that's not God's will. I, uh, I mean, God wants you to do this instead. And we need to be careful with the leading of the Spirit of God on our children. We need to be careful with the leading of the Spirit of God on our lives and not let our, our self-will hinder God from using. Whose will will your kids be serving? Whose will are you serving? Are you serving God's will? Or are you following your own will? It's easy to feel comfortable, to seek a life of comfort. And we all want that. I want that. But comfort, true comfort, comes in being in the center of God's will. And then that may not be having a lot of money. That may not be doing what you want. That may be making doing what God would have you to do. The devil knows how powerful money can be. So he uses his threat all the time to stop people from serving him. Any of these threats look familiar to you? Any time in the, near, in, the, in the past? The near past? Or even coming up soon? How about this threat? A scandalous threat to Nehemiah. Look at Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. And verse number 1, the Bible says, Now it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arabian, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. They were trying to get Nehemiah to stop. Hey, Nehemiah, just stop what you're doing. Come meet with us in the village really quick. Let's talk. 
But look at verse 3. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah says, I'm doing a great work for God. I don't have time to come down and chat with you. I have something to do. I have an objective. Verse 4, and he knew these people had no, did not have interest in Nehemiah's welfare. Verse 4, yet they sent unto him, unto me four times after this sort. Five letters, five messengers they sent to Nehemiah. And I answered them after the same manner. Every time they sent a messenger, Nehemiah says, you know my answer. Go back. I'm not coming. I'm not stopping the work that God has for me. Verse 5, Then Sanballat, his servant, unto me, sent his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And here it is. Wherein was written, It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king according to these words. And that thou hast appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. You know what they were doing now? They're trying to blackmail him. They're trying to form a scandal that wasn't really there. They were saying, we're going to write to the king and say that you are trying to make yourself king over the Jews. And then you're going to, who knows, stop paying your taxes someday and you're going to build up an army and you're going to rebel against the king. We're going to tell the king that's what you're up to. Now you could read the rest of the chapter. Nehemiah, of course, says no. That's not what I'm doing. That's not why I'm here. I'm not, I don't care about being king. I just want my people to serve God. I want this wall built. They were trying to start a scandal against Nehemiah. Nothing hurts worse than a threat on your morality. You know the people that get criticized and slammed the most are oftentimes the people doing the greatest work for God. The people who are up on the front lines doing the greatest work for God, oftentimes they're the ones that are getting slammed. They're the ones that are getting discouraged. They're the ones that people are going to criticize over and over and over again. The Apostle Paul, he was beaten, stoned, he was imprisoned. Peter was imprisoned. He was persecuted over and over again. Jesus was constantly ridiculed, challenged, accused of, accused of speaking blasphemies numerous times. Moses was blamed for everything, poor guy. Even accused by his own siblings for being prideful and arrogant. Elijah was hated and hunted by Queen Jezebel. Martin Luther was cast out of the Catholic Church, ridiculed by most of his friends and family. George Whitfield and Billy Sunday were criticized for their style of preaching. Even great men of God today are constantly getting battered and beaten emotionally from the devil time and time again. When you stand up and do something great for God, the devil is going to challenge you. He's going to test you. He's going to see if you have what it takes. And once you start realizing that you don't have what it takes, but you have a God that can push you through it, you can actually do something great for God. If you take a stand for God, you will get tested. But remember what, Pro what Solomon said in Proverbs. If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Look at this list. There's a lot of schemes going against Nehemiah. He had a lot of things going against him. But yet, verse 15 and 16 still happen. That was the verse we read at the very beginning. Yet somehow, the wall was built in 52 days. Despite this personal threat of incompetence, despite a physical threat of war, 
and the threat of oppression and the scandal that was trying to go around about Nehemiah, none of it fell through because God was behind it. Did Nehemiah have the ability to do what? He was just a cupbearer. I don't think he went to school. I don't think he, I don't think he was um, proficient in building walls. I don't think he went to that kind of a school. I don't know. Maybe he did. I do know that Nehemiah had a great God that allowed him to conquer these schemes. Which leads us to the team of Nehemiah. The team. See, here's the secret to Nehemiah's success. He had the Lord on his side. And he wasn't alone. He had a team. No, he had an army at his side. And I want you to understand this tonight. We are not in this fight alone. Look around. This is a team. This is an army. We are in this together for God. We don't need a one-man show. In fact, God can't use a guy who's trying to do it all by himself. But he needs a group of people that will stand forward and do something great for the Lord. Look back here in chapter 2 and verse 18. Nehemiah took a stroll around the wall when he first arrived. And he was looking at the walls and he was weeping and he was crying. And he brought people with him. And he was asking and asking the Lord, Lord, what can I do? What can I possibly do here? Verse, look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 17. Verse 17. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in. This is Nehemiah talking to his team. He's saying, Ye see the distress that we are in. How Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Nah. Is that what it says? And they said, Let us rise up and build. That wasn't Nehemiah, that was his team. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. And then he goes into chapter 3, and we actually see the numbers. We see his team. We're not going to read this chapter. It just lists people after people after people. Uh, one commentator said, This work was partitioned amongst at least 37 working parties. If you read chapter 3, you'll see the list of parties that were around. And Nehemiah had these people stationed all around the wall, trying to do something for the Lord. Here's a, a small sketch one artist did of the wall. Nobody knows exactly how it looked, but similar to this, all these different people groups, Nehemiah positioned all around the wall. There, there could have been hundreds. There could have been a, a, a couple thousand people. We don't really know. But there was an army at Nehemiah's expense. They're trying to do something for God. And they all pitched in. They all did something. Even though there was scheme after scheme after scandal after threat, these people stood their ground and they were able somehow to do something great for God. But this is, what the, this is the key right here. It's their attitude. See, we have a team here. But like Maxwell said in his quote, a leader with a big vision and a bad team is a nightmare. Maybe we don't have thousands, but we have, we have, we have numbers. We have a team. And really, two people is a team, right? We have a church here that God has given us. But this is the key, their attitude. And we just read it in chapter 2. What was their attitude? 
Now we can't do this too much. You're crazy. I'm sure they were thinking that. I'm sure there had to have been a handful of people that said, this guy's insane, but I mean, <laughs> might as well. Let's do it. I mean, what else do we have to live for? Let's go. But I think the majority of the people rallied around Nehemiah and said, let's do something for God. A team that doesn't have their head in the game is not a team at all. Maybe you've played sports before. Maybe you played basketball. And if everyone's head's just not focused, they're not in the game, their mind is thinking about school, they're thinking about something else, and they're not geared, they're not focused, that team isn't going to do very well. They're not going to do that good. The coach will call a timeout and say, guys, come here, what's wrong? What are you doing? Why, how'd you miss that pass? How come you didn't see him open? Is your head in the game? Get your head in the game. You know what? Go sit down. Go take a break. We'll bring somebody else in for now. And a good coach will get, gather his people together. But I ask you now, is your head in the game? Are you ready to serve God? Or where is your focus? Where is your attention at right now? You see, Nehemiah had one goal, and that was to see this wall built. And once that whole team, once all those people gathered themselves together, it only took 52 days. 52 days to do something great for God. It's sad, but many churches are being run, they say, by only 20% of its members. They say 20% of most churches... Uh, most churches are being run by 20% of its members, which means 80% sit back and watch everyone else do the work. You know, bees, you can study bees and you can see how a hive works. And it's been said by studies that half the bees are out grabbing pollen, trying to bring uh, what is necessary back into the hive, while the other half are in the hive, flapping their wings as fast as they can, trying to keep it cool inside there so the honey could actually become what it is. And once they're done, they switch out and they go back out. The bees never take a rest. They're either flapping their wings or they're trying to bring back in the pollen. That's how the cycle of a bee works. They work as a team. Maybe you've heard this illustration before too about geese, how they fly in the air. You know how they, they fly in that like a V formation, right? And scientists have been baffled by this and they've studied it, how geese can fly for miles and miles without ever getting tired, without running out of gas and crashing to a tree. They can, they can last forever. You want to know how they do it. When a geese fly, now I'm no scientist, this is just the studies I've been reading, but even in high school they would teach that as the geese fly, one, each of them would fly at a slightly different altitude than the other. They would fly slightly higher than the person next to them and something to do with you know how planes go through the air and the air picks up and the, the air that they travel through and I don't know scientific terminology but just understand this that the air currents that they create helps keep the other ones up. So the bird that's flying in the front of the V is actually the one doing, <laughs> he's actually doing all the work. He's flying, he's creating this air current that's allowing the other geese to not have to flap as hard. Now that one geese up front doesn't stay there the whole time. But every once in a while he'll rotate and he'll go out to the side. Maybe you'll see a perfect V formation and there's one random geese way over here. And you're thinking, well, he must not have uh, woken up properly this morning. He's a few french fries short of a Happy Meal. Poor guy. Hope he makes it. No, but what he's doing is he's relaxing. He's getting ready to fall back into a formation so that somebody else can take his place. And that's how they're able to fly as far as they do. One geese, one goose, one, one flying animal could not make it as far as they could by themselves. They need to work as a team to reach their goal. That was their attitude. Well, let's get this done for God. And that led to their success. And we, we already know their success. 
In chapter 6, in verse 15, the Bible says, And they built the wall. Let's read it one more time. Chapter 6, I'll read it, and you just, uh, not read it with me, but uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, and verse 15 says, So the wall was finished in the twenty and fifth day of the month, and fifty and two days. But here it is, verse 16. And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, here it is. They were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arabians, everyone watching, when that wall got put up in t- under two months, all they could do was go, must have been their God. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they pushed through the opposition we gave them. But all they could do is sit back and in their hearts just kind of clap and say, wow, I don't think we could have done that. But your God allowed you to have that success. This church has some great things in store. God has some great plans for this church. But our success does not depend on one person. It depends on a team. It depends on us as a whole. Wilt Chamberlain, Nehemiah, a bee, some geese, they need a team to accomplish their goal. We must too. In Romans 6.13, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. If you see someone falling... Catch them before they fall. If you see someone struggling, pray for them. Don't criticize them behind their back. If you see someone hurting, comfort them. If someone's car sounds interesting, offer to take a look. If your team is going soul winning, go with them on Saturday. If there is a gap in the nursery, fill it. If we are short for ushers, volunteer. If the church looks messy, clean it. If the walls look scruffy, paint it. If the carpets look old, donate. If the kids need a ride to to church, then offer to pick them up. There's so much to do for God. There's so many things that we can do, but we can't do it by ourselves. We need a team to reach the city for Christ. We're all in this together. Let's team up and make a difference for God. If you could stand with me as we close in prayer.